Okay, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you do not, then in the bulletin uh, on the back, we, I've listed the scripture that I'm going to be looking at this morning. So if you'd like to look at that, you can do that. And, but I do want you to look at it. So you get a sense of what the scriptures teach concerning not only the resurrection of Christ, but our resurrection. See, the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ. The rising of Christ from the dead is the pivotal point upon which all the evidence of Christianity turns. By the resurrection of Jesus, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, it proves what he said is true. That he accomplished all he came to undertake. That he completed everything he came to complete. And that the sacrifice he died on the cross, because he rose from the grave, was accepted by the Father to be the eternal sacrifice for all those who would believe in Jesus Christ and therefore has the authority to give all those by faith eternal life. Which includes, of course, the resurrection of the body. So Christ sacrifice on the cross met all the claims of God's justice and without his death our salvation would be impossible for the scriptures tell us in Romans he that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ but if Christ is not risen according to scripture in in chapter 15 If he's not risen from the dead, if he didn't die on the cross, then everything's in vain. If death had been able to keep him, sin would have not been conquered. Therefore, the resurrection is the very basis of the church. Everything hinges upon it. Without it, all else would be vain, empty, and meaningless. But because Christ rose, we rise. See, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. God has been actually demonstrating to humanity the conceivability of the resurrection both in a general way and in a very special way. Well, The general way has to do with creation. It says in Psalm 19 that God has been preaching to humanity. In fact, every day that you wake up, God's preaching to you. No matter who you are or where you live, God is preaching to you a very general message. Why is he doing that? Where the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling forth the glory of God, and his expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are their words, their voices not heard. Their line has gone out, gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world, and in other words, in creation. The way God designed creation is to preach to you. 
Well, let me just take, for example, we all live in the Northeast here, so we have the privilege of really experiencing all four seasons, don't we? Which I kind of like. I, I like living and experiencing, because after, after a certain amount of time, I get sick of one season, I want another one to come, right? I'm sick of winter, and I know you are too, and you want spring to come. Well, spring's on our heel tips. Take, for example, summer. Summer speaks to us about God's bounty. God lavishes the riches of his goodness upon humanity every single day. He supplies from the earth a great abundance of food for all of mankind. We have enough to eat, don't we? He supplies amply for our physical needs. He also supplies for our ears. We have the opportunity to hear singing birds, people and children having fun and laughing. We get a chance to hear the rustling leaves of a mighty oak when the summer breeze blows through it or the pounding of the waves on the shore. We get to hear that. And all of it is crying out to us that God's there and he's speaking to us. He also supplies abundantly for our eyes. We, we have a chance to look at beautiful landscapes and the sparkling water on the lake. Different creatures that he's created with many colors and peculiar mannerisms. The flowers and all the foliage with its many different shapes, kinds, and colors. All of these and more are screaming to us of God's creative bounty to all humanity. Then summer leads into autumn. Autumn autumn reminds us that we live in a world in which things must fade and die. Leaves shrivel and fall. The green turns brown. Things rust and fall apart. Things decay and die because we live in a fallen, dying world. And the scriptures, scriptures often remind us, like in Isaiah, and all of us wither like a leaf. Life is short. We're all heading for the grave. Every day we are reminded what God has given, God takes away. In fact, it was in Daniel where Daniel was speaking, he says, all the inhabitants of of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You can't say that to God. God does it. So autumn has a message for us. Also, autumn leads to winter. Winter gives us a sobering message. Because it it impresses upon us the terrors of God's vengeance or the power of God. When winter comes upon you and the cold temperatures drop and the snow falls, even our modern lives with all the achievements and equipment that we have, it brings us to a screeching halt. When there are whiteout conditions or the snow melts and the water rises and the floods... floods come and we cannot hold back 
the power that it unleashes. But we have to consider when winter does come and these different things happen throughout the years that God's mightiest message is being preached to us. It's impressing upon us the terrors of God's vengeance because God in a moment can remove all that is pleasant, all that gives joy, all that satisfies and exchange it with storms and calamities. And he is able to do that, and he does that. It is God himself that will come and judge the world in righteousness. He is a God of wrath, but he is also a God of love and hope, where it was Isaiah who said in the Old Testament, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. See, God is screaming to us every day. Are we listening? Do we hear the general message given by God? Because winter leads to spring, which is upon us now. It is spring that makes us feel alive it gives us hope springtime is the time that god speaks to us about the greatest doctrine in scripture the doctrine of the resurrection the picture of life is all around us in the springtime budding trees and flowers ready to burst forth with blossoms the seeds and bulbs buried in the soil, start pushing through and breaking to the surface, and then it springs forth life. And we have beautiful flowers and blossoming trees because of it. So, see, may we hear the message that God is speaking to us, and even though we will be buried in the earth, like the seed that is buried in the ground, and die, we will rise again. We will rise again. See, so that is God's general message to humanity. Everybody receives it. No one could neglect it, or no one could say it's not there. It's there, and it slaps us in the face every day. But because God's message of the resurrection is proclaimed generally, especially in the springtime, it has a particular bent towards Christianity because it's found in a very special way in the Word of God. And so that's why I want you to look at the Scripture I'm going to mention this morning because, believe me, there's a special message to all humanity found in the Bible. And I am under no illusion to think that everyone will come and believe in this truth even though the possibility of it being conceivable is all around us it is a doctrine specifically taught in scripture it is a special message given by god to his children it was the apostle paul who said in acts chapter 26 as he was speaking to the people why do you consider it incredible if god does raise the dead Why would you even think it incredible just thinking about nature and what God has done in nature? 
the resurrection from the dead is indeed an incredible thing. And it's uh, an incredible thing for even a, especially for a thinking person, someone who has a number of reasons why they may even not believe in the resurrection of the dead. First of all, there's really no experience of any living person, at least today, that can say they experienced one or saw one. We know that there are resuscitations for those who have been declared clinically dead for a few moments, but for a person that has been in the grave for days and weeks and months and years and centuries to burst the bands of death, to burst the soil and rise up again from the coffin, that is something no present human being can attest to. In fact, the universal experience of the race is that it just does not happen. If it did, it would be considered an incredible thing. The second thing to consider for a moment is the state of those who are dead. Some people suppose that they will lay in fancy coffins and be preserved like mummies, the mummies of Egypt, and never decay. But that's not true. The chronology of decay goes something like this. The thing that goes first is the brain, and soon there is the large cavity between the ears, and then the heart soon follows, and the two vital organs of man, the rest of the body trails along, not far behind. The bones are the last to disintegrate, and so man returns to the dust, open any casket left for a long time, and you will find just a bit of dust, just as the Scriptures tell us. And the last thing, another thing to ponder, is that many people have been dissolved in different ways. They have been burned in great fires. They have been buried in the deeps of the sea. They have been destroyed or eaten by great creatures. Why would you think that they could be raised together when they're in bits and pieces all over the place? Why you will find the particles of men under every tree and in every crevice and in every corner of the world. Shall these particles rise again? Shall they live again? Is it not an incredible thing that God should bring it all together by his power? Yes, it is an incredible thing. And it is the great teaching of the Bible. It is found right in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 51, verse 51 and 52, where it says this, that the dead will rise. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So see, in a very special way, God is saying to us, yes, there will be a resurrection from the dead, our resurrection from the dead. There's no analogy such that can really speak of resurrection. There are those who call them analogies, but they all break down on closer inspection. We have all heard about the grub worm and the caterpillar that crawls in the mud. One day it begins to turn in upon itself, and it makes its own winding sheet, and it builds its own coffin. And then in time, we see that the chrysalis 
breaks open and a beautiful butterfly soars into the air. We are told that this is a picture of resurrection. It's a, big, it's a beautiful picture, no doubt, but it's far from the picture of re- resurrection. Now take that chrysalis containing that grub worm and hopefully, and the hopeful butterfly, grind it into powder, mix the powder with clay, place it in the rivers of the earth until it's spread all over the world, and then call forth that solution, the glory of the butterfly. Now that would be a picture of resurrection. That's what God is going to do. He will definitely do it. But there are questions. Now look at your, your, uh, the word of God and, and on the sheets. Look at verse number 35. There will be questions, but the test de- does demonstrate for us the answers to those questions too. Look what it says in verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? Now that's, that's a reasonable question. Because you know what, I'm, hard, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind about around the resurrection of the body. So how will it all happen? Well, again, what is very interesting about Scripture, look at how he answers in verse number 36. He says, you fool. Why do you think he says that? You know why? He says, it, you fool, for this reason. Don't you know it's been all around you all the time? In fact, the illustration is from your own garden. Look what he says in verse 36. You fool, that's what what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. See, the seed that you plant in the ground, in its original form, before it can come to life, it has to die before it becomes a plant. We all know that, even though we may not uh, cultivate gardens here. We do know that, don't we? We, we, we get that sense. We, we, it's all around us everywhere. So see, the, the seed itself has to die. It has to go into the ground. Unless you do that, if you keep a seed in a bottle somewhere or in a, a, a package somewhere, in a drawer somewhere, it's never going to blossom up into anything because it is in a dormant, dead state. But you stick it in the soil somewhere. And you know what's going to happen? Boom. Something's going to take place, and it's going to begin to grow. See, the identity is preserved, but the difference when it finally starts growing is extraordinary from the shriveled up seed, right? Look at verse 37. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps wheat or something else. See, the seed dies with the exception of a particle almost too small to perceive, which is the real life contained within the wheat, within whatever seed that you're planting. There's a great difference between the original and the final form. The seed looks nothing like the natural plant. Matter of fact, if you're not good at looking at seeds, you may not even know what a particular seed looks like unless you stick it in the ground. Oh, I didn't know I planted tomato a tomato plant, or I didn't know I planted tulips. Well, usually tulips, we'd get a handle on because it's a nice bulb there, right? But, we, but once you do it, the, the seed's not going to make the mistake. It knows exactly what it is. See, so what he is saying here to you and I is that the seed changes radically 
but continues in the same state, so shall it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is here as a shriveled seed. It is put into the grave. There it rots and decays, but God preserves within it a sort, sort of life germ which will grow into something quite different than that was planted. If you look at verse 52, it says, In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. See, and then verse 38 of our scripture How does that happen? Well, God causes it to happen. It says, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. See, you never really have to ask how it happens. For an all-knowing and all-powerful God will make that seemingly impossible thing possible and will bring it to pass. So that's... You and I, we're going to be planted in the grave, but someday there's going to be a resurrection of the body. And the body that is is risen is a body that's going to be quite different than the body that you have right now. The body that you have right now. Now look at verse 42 to 44 because we look at how God will change the earthly body to a spiritual body. And he gives four things in this scripture. In verse 4, the first contrast pertains durability. It goes from a perishable to an imperishable body. It says in verse number 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. So see, In the bodies that we have now, every nerve, every blood vessel tells me that I must die. We are subject to deterioration and eventual death. We are full of sufferings, aches and pains, which remind us that we can only remain here for a short period of time. But notice what it says, that our bodies are going to be raised imperishable, that the resurrection body is durable, subject neither to disease nor decay or death. It is going to be completely and totally different than what was planted in the coffin, in the ground. A second thing, contrast, has to do with value and potential, that it is buried in dishonored and it's raised in glory. In a very real way, the dishonoring part of being in the body is that the body is quite embarrassing. Especially when it comes to the point of when you grow weak and finally die. The, the weaker you grow, the more you have to depend on other people and other things to keep you mobile or to keep you functioning in a proper way. And it gets pretty messy, doesn't it? None of us want to be sitting in a chair drooling all over ourselves, do we? Living in this body is is dishonoring because it is it has doesn't have the value which the new body is going to have. See, we are sown in dishonor 
and we're raised, it says, in glory, that there's a potential and a dignity and a brilliance that is going to come to the new body that is nowhere near the natural state in which we're in now. There's going to be value and potential to our new body that we don't even realize now. We couldn't even conceive of now, but that's what the Word of God tells us. Another thing about the body, verse 43, it is sown in weakness and is raised in power. Every one of us really should have be labeled in front of us, handled with care, because we are fragile. And how weak we are when it comes to the point of dying. A person must be carried by his family and friends to his own grave. He cannot even lay down lay himself down at his last resting place. But the powerless body will be raised in power. We will get up never to fall again. We will have superhuman bodies. And then, verse 44, the contrast here is, has to do with fear. It is sown in natural body. It is raised the spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The, what the Scripture is saying to us, listen, I want you to get it. Just like a, a seed is planted in the ground and it grows up to something quite different than you plant, it, its body is much more glorious, much more beautiful. It displays a, a character that you don't see in the seed. That's how it's going to be with this new body of ours. If you are in Christ, why is that? Look at verse 50 of our passage. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, if you want to get into the kingdom of God and you want this kind of resurrected body, then, of course, a person has to be made fit to live within the presence of the glory of God with a new body. And this body is going to be able to be in the presence of God. The body is... The body is only suited, this body right now we have is only suited for the natural world. Someday we will have a spiritual body perfectly suited for the heavenly realm. And when you, the believer, dies, your spirit will dwell in heaven for a little while without a body. But afterwards you are to enter into a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, that's basically the encouragement we get in the Word of God because Christ has risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of all who will believe in Him, and they will rise from the dead, too. And with this glorious, unbelievable, uh, indestructible body that will live forever and never die, that is our hope. But there is a problem. See, the problem is we have to consider why we die. If you look at verse number 55, it tells us this. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then look at verse 56. The sting of death is what? Sin. The sting of death is sin. So that means in this passage, actually, there are two ingredients that we have to understand for the hope of the resurrection. The first one, the first ingredient, is that which is sin. You may ask yourself, why all the violence in the world? Because after all, haven't psychologists told us that we're basically good? 
Isn't it true that there's no such thing as a bad boy or a bad girl or, for that, for that matter, a bad person? Because there's all a, a spark of goodness in all of us. There's really no bad people. The media tells us to get the very best. Why? We deserve it. But we see, what we really deserve is hell. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But, and that tells us the wrath of God. That the scriptures make it plain to all of us that we are sinners. Nothing can be more clear in scripture than that. Romans tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then in Romans 3, there is none who does good, not even one person does good. And then I love this passage from Ecclesiastes where it says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And then Jeremiah, of course, says the heart, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand that? Well, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. I can understand that. And I'm telling you straight out, listen, you're a sinner, and sin is the sting of death. The reason why you die is because you sin. So, see, that is a problem. The problem is sin, and the Scriptures make it very plain. If you offend in one point, you are guilty of all of it. You don't have to break all the commandments. It's amazing to me how many people think that their good works is going to outweigh their bad works. That's just simply a lie. A person's just deceiving themselves. The attitude of many people is that they are really quite good and they are certainly sufficiently good or better than someone else they know. But no person is good enough. I was talking to a guy uh, a couple days ago, and he, uh, Josh was looking at some truck he wanted to buy, and I was talking to the salesman, and the salesman, we struck up a conversation about uh, the Reformation, believe it, believe it or not, because uh, he was a history teacher. And I says, well, what was the key of the Reformation? And he says, well, I don't know. And I said, well, it was justification in Christ alone, by faith alone, in Scripture alone. And I went, the the whole alones or the solos of Scripture. And he says, well, but that's all right, because I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to die. I'm going to go, and whatever is not good in me is going to burn off in purgatory. And I said, well, you know what? Um, There's no purgatory. And he says, what? I says, let, let, let me just say this. If there was a purgatory, what that really says is that what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient and it was not complete. And he said, you're right. You're right. And I says, see, that's why all those things are made up by, by church councils, by church, by, by people to try to somehow make it easier But God says straight, listen, there's heaven and there's hell. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo for babies. There's none of that stuff in Scripture. There's light and darkness. There's heaven and hell, right? There's God's way and there's every other way. You have that clear distinction in Scripture that, listen, you got to get the message right. You have to make sure that you're right with not God, not based on you and your goodness. You have none based on Christ's 
goodness and righteousness that's imputed to you. See, that's what makes you right with God. Nothing you could do could possibly make you right with God. How good do you have to be to make sure that you're right with God? You'll never know. You'll never know. It'll never happen. See, the whole world is, world is a fallen race and rebels and really stands condemned in the sight of God. Actually, I, I was recently reading about a Christian man who was sharing his faith with an elderly gentleman, and he asked him this question. He says, what is your hope of eternal life based upon? That's a good question. And he says, my hope of eternal life is based upon Jesus. And, and the, the Christian man thought, well, that's good. He's making progress in his life. And then the man said, quoting this scripture, Jesus said, be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And the elderly man proceeds to say, I'm perfect. And the guy says, run that past me again? And the, he really meant it. See, he was not talking about any imputed righteousness from Christ in his statement. He was depending on his own purity, on his own holiness, on his own goodness to be perfect. So he was perfect, so he thought, but he thought wrong. He was not perfect. See, the man was not able put a dent in the man's self-righteousness, and many people will die in their self-righteousness, too stubborn to come and believe in Christ by faith, but depending on everything good they've done, hoping somehow God would let them in. See, though, so the first ingredient that we have a problem with when it comes to understanding the resurrection is sin. But according to our passage of Scripture here, it says... Uh, clearly that the sting of death is sin. But it says something else in that passage in verse 56, but the power of sin is the law. If there was no law, really sin wouldn't be a problem. But unfortunately, well, fortunately, God has placed the law there, right? And what does the law really do for us? It shows us we are what? Sinners. So that means God places his law there. Every time we sin and our conscience even bears witness, right? Because God's put that in our conscience. Every time we sin, we know we sin. Why? We are breaking God's law. So the second thing is that we, really, the law has to do with God's justice. The Bible teaches us that God is absolutely just and holy. He is of purer eyes than ever could look upon iniquity, and thus no sin could ever enter into heaven. No person who has his sin with him can enter into the kingdom of God. It just won't happen. It cannot happen because God's just and he must punish every and all sin. Did you ever hear anybody brought into a court and charged with murder or grand larceny or robbing or whatever it may be and get up on the witness stand and say, well, yes, your honor, but... Understand this, I was a Boy Scout. I, I was on the honor roll in school that I helped old ladies cross the street, that I have a marriage badge to prove all these things, a merit badge to prove all these things. I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. But the judge really is going to say to him, really you can care less what he did, right? 
Rather, you are here, sir, to answer the charge of murder. It doesn't matter what you did before. It doesn't matter your good deeds before. Nothing else matters except this charge. We're all guilty of being rebels before God, and we cannot do anything at all because of God's justice to change that. Now, we would like for God to lower the bar and go easy on us, but he cannot. He cannot violate his own being. He cannot violate his own holiness, his own justice. He cannot do that. He cannot deny himself. God even declares in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it will die. So you've broken the holy law of God. I've broken the holy law of God and therefore guilty and condemned. We sin, we sin every day in thought, in word, in deed. And we also sin deliberately. And we also sin in, unintentionally. We all have broken the laws of God in one of those ways. And therefore, we are condemned already under God's holy justice. If we lie once, we're a liar. If we're angry with our brother, even one time in our heart, uh, and we don't even carry it out, we're a murderer. If we lust after someone, we are committing adultery in our heart already, God says. See, he takes sin very seriously, and his justice just can't let it go by. So we're told in God's word that all will rise from the dead. It is recorded in Scripture in the Gospel of John, there will be a resurrection of life and there will be a resurrection of judgment. Those who are in Christ will have a resurrection unto life. Those who did not believe in Jesus Christ, will have a resurrection unto judgment in which they will meet the just demands of God and they will be cast from his presence for all eternity. See, so that's the problem we have. We, in this passage of Scripture, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Our own sin condemns us. And the law rises up and says, you're guilty. Period. You can't do a thing about it. You cannot save yourself from that circumstances, that circumstance right there. But see, that's the great thing about Scripture. What is the solution to that? What's the solution to that predicament? Well, look in your passage. Verse 54, it says this. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? In victory. And then look at verse 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the solution to the predicament of being under God's justice is Jesus Christ, the one who died in the place of sinners, the one who rose from the grave to give eternal life to all those who believe, who took their penalty, who satisfied the justice of God, he 
is the solution that gives victory to those who believe in him. He's the solution. And if you look up, it's not on your sheet here, on the bulletin, but in verse number 20, it says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, Jesus Christ started a great harvest. He was the first one to defeat death, and all those who believe in him, what are they going to do? The sting of death is gone, right? The law can no longer condemn them. So the problem's taken care of. What's next? Entry into the kingdom of God. All right? And then a resurrection body that is unlike what we're used to. That's the hope that we have. So that's the, the general message that God gives every spring to us. And it's the special message we find in the word of God. So my friend, where will you be forever? Do you have in your heart the blessed assurance that you are on the way to the kingdom of God? Do you know that your sins have been washed away and forgiven by Christ? Do you know that for sure? If you do not, then there is a reason, and this is the reason. Because you are still trusting yourself. Because you're trusting in something that you have done. You're trusting in some goodness or merit that's in your life that of your own. That there is some morality, there is some goodness in you that will somehow earn a passage into the kingdom of God. And my friends, that is a lie. The greatest deception is self-deception. And people deceive themselves every single day when it comes to this truth. But make no mistake, God wants you to hear his general message and he wants you to hear his special message so that you will actually respond to it. So that you will actually Simply agree with God that you are a sinner, guilty as charge, and cast yourself on the mercy and the grace of God and say to the Lord, Lord, it was for me you died. In my place you died on the cross and you rose from the grave to give me eternal life and to forgive my sins. Lord, nothing in my hands I bring Simply to thy cross, I cling. When you come there in your spiritual life, that's when you'll know salvation. Because all who trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation, all who repent of their sin, and all who follow him are given the free grace of eternal life paid for with an infinite price by the one who died and shed his blood in the place of his children and who promised that, having risen from the dead, he will take you to be with him forever in paradise, the kingdom of God, heaven, whatever word the scripture may use to describe that, to be with God forever. See, that's the hope 
that the general message of spring tells us that that seed that's planted in the ground is going gonna, gonna to grow up to something different than you planted. It's going to be something quite glorious. That in Christ, when you're planted in the grave, you have the hope that when you, you will rise again because Christ already rose, the harvest has already begun. And so therefore you will rise vastly different than you are used to in these human bodies and you will live with Christ forever and ever and ever. Not experiencing anything that we're experiencing here as far as weakness and pain and dishonor and the whole list that goes down. Amen? See, that's the hope that we have. So you can't say God hadn't been speaking to me. He's spoken to you this morning in a very special way from the Word of God. And as soon as you walk out that door, he's going to slap you in, a, in your face again. And he's going to show you that flower and that tree. And he's going to cause you to go on your porch or your deck in the backyard. And he's gonna, you're going to look out and you're going to see everything coming to life. And you know what it should tell you? There will be a resurrection. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would speak in a very special way to the hearts of your people. I pray that you would show them very clearly, in an honest way, where they stand before you, Lord. And I pray they would, with an honest heart, throw themselves on your mercy. Knowing now, Lord, that they can't do anything at all to earn salvation because you earned it for them on the cross. So there's nothing we can bring. But Lord, simply by faith, believing you tell us the truth, to trust in Christ and his death and resurrection, and you promised us that what you say in your word will come to pass, that you'll forgive us of our sin, you'll make us fit for heaven, and Lord, that we have the hope of a resurrection in the future that is so glorious, it's really undescribable in human words. Thank you, Lord. Please work in the hearts of your people to bring them to yourself and not put it off or delay a single moment for they may not be guaranteed even the next 10 minutes. I praise you for what you'll do, Lord, and how you work. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.